0: The Dorothy Cuya Archive Project is a special Writing on the Wall Commission from National Museums Liverpool. In the last episode, we explored the increasing institutionalised racism of 1960s Britain and Dorothy Couya's role in the civil rights and anti colonial movements in London. By the end of the decade, Dorothy, now approaching 40, was witness to a new generation of Black activists inspired by the Black Power movement of the US and later the Rastafarian movement of Jamaica. By the mid-1970s, over 40% of Britain's Black population were born on British soil. This new generation refused to settle for what they perceived previous generations had, bad education, housing, low-skilled and low-paid work. The worsening police brutality and the rise of the National Front during the 1970s begat the rise of a black militancy that would eventually explode across Britain. The uprisings of the early 1980s shocked and captivated a nation. But for Dorothy Kuya and other campaigners on the ground, however, Uprisings were long overdue. I'm Project Manager Jenea Pickett, and this is Episode Three of Writing on the Walls Dorothy Kuya Podcast. Liverpool, the second city of Empire was lost in empire's wake. In post-industrial and post-colonial Britain, this once global port city was quite suddenly redundant. Following the 1968 Race Relations Act, the Community Relations Commission set out to establish regional bodies in areas with large immigrant populations. But due to Liverpool's economic decline and outdated industry, Its black population had increased a meagre 0.7% during the Windrush years and was initially overlooked. In fact, there was no less than 70 community relations councils established in areas throughout the country before Liverpool. The city's fathers at the time clung to the myth that because Liverpool's historic black community simply existed, that there was nothing wrong with its community relations. Quoted by Ferdinand Dennis in his 1988 book, Behind the Front Lines, Dorothy's mentor and comrade Ludwig Hesse explained how he and others fought tooth and nail for the establishment of a Liverpool Community Relations Council at a town hall meeting in early 1970. There's no evidence in the archive that Ludwig was responsible for Dorothy joining the CRC but there is evidence that the pair had stayed in touch throughout the 1960s and nevertheless, after almost a decade, the two comrades were back together on the campaign. I spoke with archivist Vicky Caron about Dorothy's return to Liverpool and the activities of the Community Relations Council.
1: So thinking about Dorothy's return to Liverpool, I was looking for some evidence in the archive about this. One of the things that I found was that working for the newly established Community Relations Commission would have been a major opportunity for Dorothy. I can see how that would have appealed to her. So Liverpool was one of the later cities to establish a council. It was set up in June 1970, it first occupied a space in the Rialto building and then later moved to 64 Mount Pleasant. And Dorothy was the first senior community relations officer. Now, this was quite a prominent position. And not surprisingly, it made the local press. So I've got a small um, snippet of the article that I'd like to read out. And maybe that will answer why Dorothy decided to oh, return yes. to Liverpool. Go on. If she had not got this job with the Community Relations Board, Miss Kuya was considering going to Ghana, where she had spent a holiday this year. I would not have gone for good, she says, but it would have been for five years or so. And then I thought, if I'm leaving London, why not go home to Liverpool? It's good to come back to one's home city, isn't it? And that was from the Liverpool Echo, the 16th of September, 1970.
0: Mm. So she's
1: clearly felt a need to return Yeah, and probably, like, all those skills that she's
0: gathered up until that point felt that she could make a real impact, you know, finally. Absolutely. um, Yeah, on the city she grew up in.
1: So, at the start, the CRC had Dorothy, and by the time that she left, there were 19 other members of staff there. They had youth workers, care workers, what they termed field workers and also someone to work solely with the growing Ugandan population in the city. And there are diaries and message books that show all the appointments, not just for Dorothy but for the new staff. So you can see the range of um, initiatives that they're involved in. So there's working parties, there's committees, they're looking at homelessness... Dorothy wrote to and met with the police and they formed a help on arrest scheme, which was um, a small card and a a zine type publication that was informing young people of what their rights were, if they were to be arrested, if they were approached by the police, if they were taken away. And it was a really accessible document document And you can see how these cards and these zines would have been quite easily distributed across Mm. the city. Mm. But they were also involved in um, campaigns against homelessness. They were looking at employment. Dorothy worked with the Manpower Services Commission. And soon after, um, South Liverpool personnel was set up. That was based on um, Parliament Street. And this was aiming to give black people equal opportunities in employment and how to secure employment um, and being aware of their rights if they felt they were discriminated against in any way. But there were also creative sides to the work that the Commission was doing. And a couple of these include um, the Young People's Theatre Workshop. And I think that might have been something close to Dorothy's heart, maybe harping back to when she was involved with the Unity Theatre. She was quite a creative person and had lots of interest in arts and culture and i think she was trying to maybe encourage others um, in that area and not forgetting the l8 writers workshop too mm. so that was set up with the university of liverpool uh, we've got papers and letters from june 1976 and one of the people who was involved in the writers workshop was um Levi yeah Levi Tafari
0: yeah who's you know probably the most sort of well-known Liverpool poet now and he, he is always quick you know to say even though Dorothy wasn't sort of around you know at the workshops that he knew that she was the one who sort of set that up and yeah he's kind of forever grateful for that From the record she left behind it's obvious that in this pioneering role Dorothy was using every ounce of skill and energy she had to revitalize the area she'd grown up in she encouraged local youth in their educational pursuits local women in their feminism she helped establish the Caribbean center and now PAL center But the saddest and possibly most telling of the CRC initiatives in the Archive is the 1971 Help on Arrest literature for Black youth aged between 12 and 25. Liverpool 8 was occupied by police. For generations of Black families, police harassment was a feature of everyday life. And as the 60s rolled into the 70s, this harassment became increasingly violent and detrimental, a pattern that was being repeated in black communities throughout Britain. As the social problems created through discrimination in education, housing, employment and other spheres increased, black people in Britain, and especially Liverpool, as City Councillor Margaret Symey reflected, were, quote, facing extinction, end quote. 1970s black identity in Britain had changed tremendously since the 40s, following a blossoming of black American culture that, with the aid of new technologies, teleported scores of writers, thinkers, sports stars, artists and musicians that influenced a generation of black youth. The British Black Power Movement began in 1968, with members such as Olive Morris, Darkus Howe, Linton Kwesi-Johnson and O.B. Egbuna. Liverpool's own Panther-inspired group sprang up around the same time, most notably the Green Jackets. The Green Jackets were a group of mostly black, white and Chinese boys who formed in the late 1960s out of particular necessity. Liverpool late was thoroughly ghettoised And young black boys especially ran the risk of a chase and or beating if they were caught venturing outside of their designated area. This violence would come from the Liverpool police just as much as the National Front or skinheads. The green jackets, with their strength in numbers, could push the ghetto boundaries and the invisible colour bar that still operated. I spoke with filmmaker and Liverpool Eight community activist B. Freeman about what life was like for Black youth in 1970s Liverpool.
2: The social situation in the 1970s for the Liverpool Black community, it, it's difficult to describe it really because you had good things about it, but then you also had the bad things about it. And the bad things about it was young black men in particular, getting stopped under the SUS. There was also high unemployment. There was also the education, uh, young people getting expelled from school or getting thrown out of school if they challenged the situation. And then the awareness of like the education system. Teachers had their own observation of, you know, young black people in Liverpool late. Um, You know, you wasn't going to succeed. Uh, why should we give you an education? And their own obsession with things that came out of old education reports. And I think, myself personally, that was a hangover from the, the Fletcher report. And I, that stigma never ever went away and it was more i hadn't heard about the uh, fletcher report and then all these things started to come up and then we realized why people were the way they was towards black people in the city it was like a whole color bar going on especially in the city center mm-hmm. you would never see a black person in the shops or banks you could come through liverpool and you'd never see Uh, any tourists coming through from, say, Lime Street Station and you come down past it, which is now St. John's Market, you go to places like what used to be then the big Marks and Spencers, you know, all the big shops then, and you would never, ever see a black person in there, never. And you used to get looked at if you were in town, like, oh, you're not supposed to be here. Mm -hmm. Why? You're a black person. Don't come here. And So there was all of that going on. And then, like, young black people in particular, they started thinking, we've had enough of this. And then they started through mainly, I would say, uh, the Methodist Youth Centre and young black people getting together and searching for their own black identity, looking through that, through the... um, what was it, the Green jack. They were, they were called the Green Jackets in Liverpool, but they were called the Black Panthers in America, uh, looking at, you know, Malcolm X, Stokely Carmichael, uh, mm-hmm. Angela Davis, and all of this all came to be, and the music as well, you know, young, gifted and black, um, mm-hmm. that inspired So many, wearing your afro as big as you could, sticking your comb in your afro. And then the challenges with a lot of youth, this gave them an inspiration. It made them strong. And they were challenging the skinheads because it was like the boundaries on Park Road. Mm -hmm. You couldn't go into Park Road. But, you know, they started challenging that. There was always fights. And there was a school, I believe, somewhere in Park Road it's knocked down now. I think it was called St Martin's or something like that. It's just where the opposite side of the road where the big Tesco is in Park Road. Now there was a school somewhere around there, and they started sending young black kids to that school. It was like a secondary school, and there used to be murder there with all the skinheads and all the white kids and and the black. And so they were challenging, and that mm-hmm. that changed a whole perspective in terms of the black community. I mean, all the parents, I remember my own parents say, oh, those young lads, those young black lads, they're causing trouble and there's no need for it. And, yeah, because they used to bite their tongue and were very acceptance because they didn't feel they had the armour to challenge. Mm. And, like, the young black people getting picked up getting a, a criminal record when there was no need for it. I mean, I know, for example, when um, Wally Brown was the youth leader at the Methodist, especially on a Thursday night, they'd have two or three, up to 200 kids in there. It was the only place where they could go. Mm-hmm. And the police fans used to wait the other side of Princess Avenue. And as the kids came out, they'd wait and grab them. Yeah, yeah. And then the next thing you know, they were in the police station and Wally and Ewan Gillespie, it was at the time, he was a white guy who was in the the Methodist Youth Group, and they used to have to go down and bail them out. Yeah. And so that was, and it was horrible in many ways, Um, but it was horrible, but things started rising, you know. Yeah. And then politically we got also, there was the Liverpool LBO, the Liverpool Black Organisation, that got together with the late David Clay Mm -hmm. and everybody and um, we started challenging things, marching against things and people were happy to come out and challenge and march. And so what all that did, it started to disturb the status quo. Mm. And they thought, aye aye, what's going on here? But Dorothy, I mean, apart from that, I mean, what for me in particular, and for other Black women, when she became, uh, I think she was a secretary of the National Assembly of Women, um, one of the first things she did, I mean, because it was a very white organization, and she changed the perception of all of that. Anyway, she was the secretary and she got a number of us black women involved in the National Assembly of Women. because she wanted more black faces in the National Assembly, even though it was like a communist women's group. She wanted more black faces in there and in particular Liverpool black faces. Mm-hmm. And that's what she did. And we all joined up and we got there. I mean, and then we were all going, out because she was saying, all these, you know, these people are going here, they're going there. And she said, I want you as Liverpool black women. And I went to watch her. I mean, Linda Loy went off and represented us in some big summits in Greece. And, and Esther Mufti went off somewhere else. And, you know, that these are the things that Dorothy did for us. And, you know, when she was involved in Dragon's Teeth, And she said, oh, I want you to, um, we're doing this magazine called Dragon's Teeth and, you know, I want you to sell it. And we had to, she was, because I used to have boxes of these Dragon's Teeth delivered to my door, I think it was once a month or every other week. And then it was my job to get them out to people, the magazines. And it was all about black education and the way black people were represented in children's books. And it was a wonderful... And, you know, and I used to have to determine... I used to get it out to people. Yeah, yeah. It's really important that people understood that there was no black representation in children's books. There was no, you you know... And again, and we went down to um, John LaRose Bookshop in London, and they used to have the Saturday schools there because she was trying to get that involved here in Liverpool. Yeah because they used to have the young uh, the saturday school in the in the bookshop in the john LaRose bookshop in london and so kids all used to go there on a saturday look at the books black identity all of that was going on and she did get it to a certain extent here in uh, liverpool but it's all it's all those things that was happening at the time i mean i could you know if i go through my papers i could go through Talk about it for hours, but they were good times and I enjoyed yeah. them. Yeah. And it brought, you know, about me as an individual and my worth. And I was worth a lot more than the establishment thought it was. And that happened for a lot of black women. And we got, you know, black sisters came about. And so when anything happened. We were all ready, through the Liverpool Black Organisation, we were ready to challenge and defend, which we did.
0: Dorothy's long political education had taught her that the situation for Black people in Liverpool and other communities like it was a consequence of a highly sophisticated system of oppression that operated in every sphere of white Western capitalism. White superiority was set out by government policy, reinforced daily in the press, and weekly on television. If you ask most black Britons of a certain age to describe what school was like for them as children, the morning after shows like Love Thy Neighbour, Till Death Do Us Part, Mind Your Language, etc. had been aired to the nation you'd know that racism was alive and thriving in 1970s Britain. One issue Dorothy took specific interest in was the portrayal of black people in children's literature, school textbooks, and education. One of her major achievements during the CRC years was the research project Sewing the Dragon's Teeth that demonstrated how much Widespread literature encouraged patriotism, the glorification of empire and the oppression of black people the world over. For generations, from infant age, white children were indoctrinated with racial prejudice and black children were being taught that they were subnormal, less intelligent, less civilised, less worthy less beautiful than their white peers here's vicky talking about the papers from that time
1: so again dorothy at the forefront was looking at a project to monitor children's books and this evolved into a report that dorothy wrote the report is titled sewing the dragon's teeth racial bias in the books we teach there was a couple of exhibitions And later on, towards the end of the 1970s, Dorothy would speak at conferences and training events on this initiative. Now, this Dragon's Teeth project grew. And in London, there was a journal called The Dragon's Teeth. And that looked at school books and the racial bias in them. And this whole initiative nationally led to the formation of an organisation Called the National Committee on Racism in Children's Books. And there are around two boxes of archive material relating to this organisation. This was funded by Greater London Council. And you can see how Dorothy is stepping up to a, a national stage with this national mm-hmm. campaign.
0: Dorothy's activism was part of a wider movement across Britain concerned with racism in child welfare and education. Her friend and comrade Jean Tate, from episode one, was an early member of Teachers Against Racism, a network of educators throughout the country, including Dorothy, of course, that promoted anti-racism in education and advocated for black studies, as well as increased support for black school leavers and black teachers. I spoke with Jean about the formation of Teachers Against Racism and the activities of the black education movement.
3: The leading light, really, in Teachers Against Racism was Bridget Harris. She was a member of the Communist Party as well. She lived... In Islington, I got to know her because by pure fluke, after I got married, my husband and I moved into the house next door to her. And um, she was very involved with um, the Black Power movement. She was supporting them. In particular, I don't know if you're, you know, about the Mangrove Nine. Mm-hmm. She was very active in um, supporting them and bail for them and was a witness in, the, in their trial and all that kind of stuff. Because she had a big house, lots of room, there were a lot of people on the left and a lot of black people as well who would come and uh, be there for various reasons. I remember particularly in 1968, there was a, a stream of people who were coming and going between Paris to be involved in the events in, in, in France and all that. Um, so it was an absolute hive of sort of political activity going on there, which inevitably I got sucked into. Um, but she was particularly strong on, obviously, on anti-racism and particularly in education. Um, I wasn't involved in Dragon's Teeth. I was aware of Dragon's Teeth. I read it and I knew she was a key person in it, um, but I wasn't actually an active person in Dragon's Teeth. So I can't tell you all that much about it, except how useful it was for us as teachers in many ways. Mm. Um, although, I was a secondary teacher. and It was, I think, more primarily geared towards um, the younger age group. It's interesting because I remember Dorothy obviously being involved in Teachers Against Racism, but I do not recall her being part of the founding group, although that is how it's recorded. I know Bridget was really the the key person that got it going Mm -hmm. in the first place. She obviously invited me to be involved right from the start because of my being a teacher, I was in teaching in a local comprehensive and we'd got involved in all sorts of things. I was mm-hmm. peripherally involved in the in the mangrove nine events as well and lots of other anti-racist things that were going on that Bridget and I were both involved with.
0: So Bridget Harris when, were here and Dorothy friends, or do you think uh, there's they, been a mistake?
3: Mates, and there may have been a split between them. For all I know, I don't know. Oh, okay. Um, Bridget yeah. was inclined to be, she was one of those people that, you know, um if she got into a disagreement with somebody, it, it could turn into a split with the person.
0: Oh, and that sounds like um, Dorothy as well from one of those. Well, uh, exactly.
3: <laughs> and the two of them, you know, I, yeah, I can't really, they both were sort of Queen Bee type people mm. and uh, mm. I don't think that, I'm not saying that they wouldn't have worked together but I don't think that they that uh, would necessarily have been something that they, they were yeah. to do the other very in a personal way at all. Um yeah. So, yeah
0: yeah so I think maybe because Dorothy's done that um Dragon's Teeth project in uh, Liverpool yes. with the community yeah. relations council I don't yeah. know how that's got mixed up then that she's been um with teachers against racism but yeah Mm, interesting. She, she was definitely linked uh, to Teachers
3: Against Racism, but I don't recall her at all as being a founder. Mm. A founder mm. um, but hey, you yeah, know. To go back to Teachers Against Racism, it, it was founded in October 1971. We had a massive teaching in what you know, like sit-ins and teachings. Uh, that was the thing that expression we used to use in those days um at County Hall in London. It was a very, very big event. The key speakers were Gus John, who you've probably heard of, mm-hmm. um, uh, Bernard Cord, who wrote the book
1: mm-hmm. "How the
3: Sorry How the West Indian Child is Made Educationally Subnormal by the British Schools," and he, he later became the Deputy Prime Minister of, of Grenada during the revolution. Then uh, there was Louis Chase, and there was another guy called David Udo, an African guy who was also very important at that time around uh yeah post-school education it was an absolutely major event that really got people going um initially the most of the members were in london schools but there were groups definitely there was a group in liverpool for sure and there was definitely one in oxford as well and i'm pretty sure other places there were certain schools that were more you know had more teachers that were sort of actively involved and also there were some student teachers so like the now defunct North London Polytechnic had ran an uh, an education course, teaching course, and um, there were some student teachers there. Another important person was um, Ken Forge. I don't know if I, did I mention him before? He was a white guy. And Dorothy was very, um, she she was definitely linked with him and they, Mm. they did some stuff together. And he started the, what was probably the first school black studies course at a school called Tulse Hill in South London. He started that before Tar, and but that what his work he brought into teachers against racism. It formed, you know, the basis of a lot of our work. In
0: 1972, Liverpool's black community once again received national attention when rioting broke out on the newly built Faulkner estate. Constructed among dilapidated tenement blocks housing mostly white families, when building was completed and black and white families were moved in, they came under attack from racist youth. Like in the 1919 riots and the 1948, homes were attacked, windows were smashed and the police as racist as the youth in many cases did nothing. Here's B again, talking about the response to 1972 in the context of a new black militancy.
2: And then, in particular, when they were demolishing part of Granby Street under the CPO, that's compulsory purchase, mm. and they built the Faulkner Estate where the women's hospital is now. Um, and they knocked all the houses down and they built this new housing estate, the Faulkner estate. And then there was this battle going on because a lot of the people, the white people that lived in Myrtle Gardens, who were looking down, watching all of this get built, said, Well, why all those black people coming in to live in that housing estate? You know, we want to live there. So there was a ba- that was a battle going on. But again, Young black people rose up to that challenge,
3: mm-hmm. and they
2: they fenced that whole place in and defended, yeah, state. And I think the police and the and the uh, council and everybody then they thought, what is going on here? Because they felt they couldn't do anything because you 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 know things was rising up yeah and young black people were no longer sitting down saying no we're you know we're staying here you're not going to come here and start smashing houses of black families they could have done that years ago but it wasn't going to happen in 72 Mm. so Mm -hmm. my philosophy around that is that it was a good
0: thing i've never really thought of of 72 like that like uh you know, the opposite of, of 1919 or 1948, you know, where that did happen, white people did attack premises, whereas that is kind of when the black community turns it on its head. I've never really thought about yeah, it Yeah, well,
2: like that. you know, because you had the 1919, yeah, right? Yeah, frightened. The black people community, they mm-hmm. had to be... They've supposed to have got some protection from the police, but they didn't. And then, you know, hence... um you know Charles Watson, and yeah. then we had the the nineteen forty eight riots. Um, again, there wasn't that challenge on. But when it got to seventy two, there was a whole different ball game going on. They thought, right, okay, and it was quite ferocious. But now the kid, you know, they're saying, you know, when you're not going to come in here, mm-hmm. you're not going to challenge us in this way. And so all of a sudden, the academics all came down on it. You know, oh, God, we've got to write a report about housing. We've got to write about Black youth. And there was all sorts of reports done on Black youth. You know, all of a sudden, every academic report was done on Black youth all over the country. And there was more conferences. Instead of realising it's just sheer racism and what they were doing and they hadn't learned from the past. Yeah. You know, in the past mm. now was coming to haunt them a little bit. And they was, oh, we've got to get these young black youth in. We, you know, we can't have them destroying the city. And then black youth were also going into the city. Mm. Uh, they used to go to a club. Where was it? On a Saturday afternoon. It wasn't Smith, Yeah, there was Smith's and another one. And it was where the market used to be. And they all used to go there dancing on a Saturday afternoon. And then, as soon as they came out of the dance, it was a Saturday afternoon. They all used to fight with the skinheads from Scotland Road. Mm-hmm. All that was all that yeah. was going on. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so the police used to be waiting at the top of where was it? Where Lewis's? So it would be like at the top of Bowles Street and places like that, waiting. For all the black youth, because they used to run through the town and people were complaining. "Ah, All these people run, they're running through the town, all these wild black kids all running through. Um, Yeah, it was good actually.
0: The update of the Race Relations Act in 1976 amalgamated the Community Relations Commission and the Race Relations Board, establishing the Commission for Racial Equality. This would mean changes within the CRC as race relations became increasingly industrialized and codified. The Liverpool CRC was rebranded and expanded to include the whole of Merseyside And as a local government body, the MCRC came under increasing criticism from the Liverpool-born black community as government provisions failed to recognise non-immigrant black populations. With its old age and position so close to the university settlement, Liverpool's black community, since the days of the eugenicist-inspired Fletcher Report of the 1930s, had been a site of peculiar fascination for academics which reached a peak in the 1970s and 80s. Indeed, in a Guardian article from 1975, it was noted that Liverpool Eight was a place that, quote, provides plenty of work for sociologists and very little for anybody else, end quote. As the intellectual elite pontificated, Little change for a generation of black families and black youth who, in many cases, were forced to move out of the city in search of decent education and work. To see us out, here's Vicky with what evidence there is from the archive about Dorothy's move back to London.
1: There are letters in the archive dating from 1976 where she's applying for jobs, and you can see she's starting to look elsewhere. Mm -hmm. On my part, I'm going to speculate and say that maybe she's becoming more involved in national campaigns. Mm -hmm. Um, So the racism in children's books, and maybe a job in education, maybe a job in London would allow her to be more involved in this campaign, thinking about education. But around this time the um, National Committee on Racism in Children's Books started a huge campaign against Robertsons and their depiction of the golly on the jam jars. And it was coming up to the point, it was the 50th anniversary of Robertsons using this image. So for Robertsons, it was a big celebration and they were going to produce a load of merchandise and toys and badges And a lot of people were against this and Dorothy really makes a a stand against this. So maybe that's one of the reasons she wants to take her work nationally. Mm, Um, Yeah, yeah. But again, just as there were local newspaper reports about her being employed in this position, there's also an account of her leaving. So this is from the Liverpool Echo Um, dated the 5th of November 1976 and in it Dorothy says with the new Race Relations Act and the big changes which will have to take place in the Community Relations Commission it is the right time for me to hand over to someone with new ideas and a fresh approach. But what else I found interesting, there's another article and she mentions seven day a week pressure And Mm. she says, when you're exhausted, you can no longer be effective. Mm. And that's Mm. the first glimpse I've seen of Dorothy thinking about her energy levels or her time commitments or how much she can devote to um, different causes, different campaigns, all whilst Mm. working. And I think... Yeah, she's right. When you are exhausted, you can no longer be up. effective. Yeah. So new job, new challenges, and she goes to work in a further education college and she's encouraging people to enter further education. Mm. So builds on earlier work she did around the lack of educational opportunities. You can see how she values education throughout her life and it's something she's clearly trying to um, encourage other people to do.
3: Yeah.
1: Now, going back to the earlier quote about why she was going to start at the um, Community Relations Commission, she talks about maybe going to Ghana for five years. Mm -hmm. Maybe she feels it is time for her to move on.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it must, you know, I think 1970s Liverpool, black Liverpool was hard. It was a hard place. And, you know, there, there probably was only so much she could do and you know from speaking to people in the community i know there was there were tensions around the caribbean center Um, You know, there was that sort of divide within the black community as well between West Africans, you know, people who were born in Liverpool who were black and West Indians. Um, And I can imagine, you know, it's it's a heavy job that she she was doing in the 1970s. Oh, yeah. At least in London, there's a larger black community. There's more support to be had. I think um, it must have been very tough for all of them on on that council, all the black members of that council
1: um yeah yeah i mean you you know you i've heard again people talking about how they felt there were no opportunities for them here in liverpool Mm -hmm. and they moved to london um and so yeah social economic conditions poverty crime lack of opportunities it's it's you know rife in the city and maybe that's you know another factor in in her decision to to move on and um take her knowledge and skills further but I definitely feel a sense of it's going national now. Yeah, not yeah. staying local. Yeah. I think that's, and that's kind of reflected in the books and the reports mm-hmm. and the publications. She looks locally and then she looks nationally and then she looks globally.
0: Yeah, yeah, very much a big fish in a small pond in yeah, Liverpool. Yeah, I think that, yeah. For the rest of the decade, Dorothy would continue on in her passion for democratic education as outreach worker for Kensington Adult Education Institute. But it was her appointment in 1979 as the first race equality advisor for Haringey Council, where Dorothy's skills and knowledge of British racism would come into their own under the leadership of the late radical Labour MP bernie grant the 1981 uprisings were just around the corner and in their wake dorothy would take public aim at racism in the police and national press but more on that next time in the next episode we'll be speaking with campaigner and wife of the late mp bernie grant sharon about Dorothy's impact in London during the 1980s. We'll also be speaking to a member of the interview panel responsible for appointing Dorothy and Haringey, former leader of the Labour Party and honorary president of Liberation, Jeremy Corbyn. Thank you for listening to Writing on the Walls, Dorothy Cooley podcast. Our special thanks to Paul and Tammy for sharing access to their Auntie Dorothy's archive. Thank you to the team at Writing on the Wall and National Museums Liverpool for supporting the project. Special thanks to my fellow history detective, archivist Vicky Caron, to Daisy STego archives assistant, and all our project participants. And finally, a big thank you to Jean Tate and B Freeman for their knowledge and contributions to the cause. This episode was researched, written and narrated by me, Jenea Pickett, edited by Rory Ballantyne with support from Melodic Distraction. We hope you've enjoyed it and will join us again for part four of Writing on the Walls, Dorothy Kuya podcast.